All right. Well, everybody, it has been a while. Welcome back to Life After Midnight, Strange History Salem Style. As always, I am your host, Kristen Harris, and I've been on a bit of a hiatus. And by a bit of a hiatus, I mean almost a year and a half. So here we are. But sometimes you just find that one story that sort of gets you back into the swing of things. And so that is why I am here for this episode. As always, you can find all Life After Midnight episodes on iTunes and Life After Midnight salem.com and you can find me on instagram at life after midnight salem but i am actually joined today in a very special collaboration with justin pv of the wonderful recap of oz podcast hey justin hello thank you so much for having me i'm really excited to tell this story i'm super super excited to have you uh so for those of you that don't know uh Obviously, Wonderful Recap of Oz is a very different podcast than Life After Midnight. So you want to tell us a little bit, my listeners, about Wonderful Recap of Oz? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My little uh, end of quarantine project was to read the original Oz books. And especially because there's a brand new adaptation that's going to be coming out uh, in the next couple years from the person who directed uh, Watchmen for HBO. And I think it was advertised as being like a more faithful to the source material, which I had never actually read. So I finally went back and I read it and I thought it would be a good idea to like do a podcast of like spark notes of the original books. And then I'm also going to be comparing them to their many, many, many adaptations, how well they hold up as adaptations, how well they hold up as pieces of media altogether. So basically that is what the podcast is. It's exploring all things Oz. That's awesome. And I know that, and the reason I had to do that is because like, I, I definitely have some people that are into some dark history that, yeah. <laughs> that follow my podcast, yeah. but Oz does get pretty dark sometimes. The, fir- the first book has like, like 120 decapitations in it. <laughs> like I, 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 I'm not even exaggerating. I didn't even know that. <laughs> Um, like there's a scene where like, like when they're first like pursuing the wicked witch, she sends like 40 of each, like she sends like 40 wolves, 40 bees, 40, I don't know, something else. And the tin man just like chops them all with his ax and like decapitates them. Yeah. It's the first book is pretty grisly. It gets fluffier as the series goes on, but it's pretty, uh, it's pretty dark. Oh, so maybe we'll have to do another collaboration <laughs> that actually does have to do with Oz. Because this one is definitely more in the vein of what my listeners are used to yeah. hearing from Life After Midnight. Yeah. And, so. and to be fair, a lot of the more recent like takes on Oz are more grisly, more dark. Like there was an, an NBC series in like 2017 called Emerald City that was very like, very, oh, I would say violent maybe would be the best way. I mean, I have a way to describe it. I haven't actually watched all of it. I've watched bits and pieces of it. But Oz has gotten darker and darker as the years go on. So that could be another fun exploration. That would be fun. Okay, well, stay tuned for that one because I had no idea there were decapitations in the land of Oz, but here we are. Uh, so uh, very appropriate for Life After Midnight. Uh, mm-hmm. I was going to say you might all wonder why I'm partnering with Justin, but now now you don't. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> but uh, today we're going to be talking about something that drew me to the particular story we're going to be discussing. Oh, and Justin, before we go... Um, where can we find Wonderful Recap of Oz? You can stream the Wonderful Recap of Oz on all major podcast streaming platforms. I'm on uh, iTunes, Anchor, 
uh, let's see, I'm on Google Podcasts, I'm on Amazon Podcasts, and oh, Spotify, that's the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think I'm really everywhere. I'm even on YouTube. So uh, that's where you can stream my stuff. And if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at Oz Recap. I'm on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah. So definitely if you are into exploring the darker side of literature, which if you've listened to my podcast, we've done that before in several realms, uh, definitely go check out Wonderful Recap of Oz, uh, because I definitely know that I'm going to be listening now because I had no idea. Um, and I definitely want to check out Justin's stuff too. Um, but the reason that I decided to do this collaboration and Justin heartily agreed is because of an Instagram post that Justin posted. And it is a photograph that he was able to find of a man named Clarence Peters, who whose murder we will be discussing in this episode. Uh, so I sort of messaged Justin out of the blue and it was just one of those stories that as he told me more about it, it was just so outlandish and ridiculous. And, and I had never heard of this story. And especially because it was a it was a Massachusetts individual born and raised who was murdered. And, you know, I've never I know, Justin, you told me there have been a few episodes of podcasts out there that have talked about this, but I had never come across any until I saw that picture. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, there was one. There was one uh, podcast that covered it. It was called Blunt History. Okay. I don't even know how that person found the case. It's not a case you can easily find online. I mean, if you look up the people who were involved, like Clarence Peters, Walter Ward, we'll get to that later. Some articles will pop up, but it's like it's not an easy thing to access. There isn't like a website for it. There isn't like a there's there really isn't a lot of uh, places online that has like a hub of all of the information. And Justin um, has done a lot of work on this, which is why, um, you know what, instead of going into the whys and giving you, you know, teasers and everything like that, I'm not going to be rough. I'm just going to get into it. So, all right, Justin, we ready to go? Ready to go. All right. So, on the morning of May 16th, 1922, at around 7.40 a.m., there was a man named George Lohr, part of a group of telephone linemen who made a pretty grim discovery. So at a crossroads in the small town of North Castle, New York, which is today known as Armonk, they found the body of a man laying out by the road who had been shot through the heart point blank. Now, there was no sign of struggle, no blood, no weapon. And they checked the man's pockets and all that was in there was a dollar and 32 cents, two dice, a deck of cards with a flush of diamonds missing, a pack of Chesterfield cigarettes, two handkerchiefs, one embroidered with pansies. And the men soon noticed that there were automobile tracks leading away from the scene and a shell from a 38 Savage automatic laying about 16 feet away from the body. The man's vest and coat were buttoned up. His cap was pulled over his eyes and he was 19 years old. Three days later, on May 19th, Earl Hardy identifies the body through a photograph to be that of Clarence Peters, his nephew. So Clarence Peters, the man whose photo I saw, is the person that they found lying dead in the road. The coroner corroborates this with identifying scars on Clarence's back and neck and a mole on his chest. And there were records from Clarence's time in the Navy that matched his fingerprints. What's baffling about the death of Clarence Peters initially is that Clarence, as far as his family knew, had had trouble finding a job, had no business in New York, as far as we know right now, 
And in fact, just weeks before, Clarence had been trying to turn over a new leaf for himself. He'd had trouble with the law in his younger years. He'd been uh, sending letters home from Paris Island in South Carolina, where he intended to join the Marines after enlist enlisting in either Milford or Boston, Massachusetts, Peter's hometown, Haverhill, Massachusetts. So he is a local man. Uh, definitely, if you live on the North Shore in Massachusetts, or for my Massachusetts listeners, you absolutely know where Haverhill is. So what was Clarence Peters from Haverhill, Massachusetts, doing basically in a small ditch by the road in a small town near White Plains, New York? On the same day, Earl Hardy identifies the body of his nephew. An attorney named Alan R. Campbell goes to White Plains, New York to speak with Sheriff George J. Werner. District Attorney Frederick E. Weeks. And he reveals that he has a client who killed a man in self-defense and that he would be surrendered the following Monday. Enter into the story, 31-year-old Walter Stevenson Ward, originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the vice president of the Ward Baking Company that was started by his grandfather, Hugh Ward, in New York in 1849. By 1922, what began as a small baking company had expanded to multiple stores, an additional bread company, and were the first company to erect a modern sanitary bakery in Pittsburgh. With this quickly expanding business now owned by Walter's father, Ralph Ward, Walter had become the head of the new Rochelle office in New York and had become responsible for the Bronx Equipment Com Company, which handled the baking company vehicles. I'm sorry. I just noticed something. Yes. His father. His father was George Ward. Oh, his father was George. His brother Ward. is his brother is Ralph. Brother's his father Ralph. is George. I apologize, everybody. So his father is George Ward. So George is in charge. Walter is head of the New Rochelle office and is also in charge of the Bronx Equipment Company, which handled the baking company deals. Thank you for the correction, Justin. So on May 22nd, Ward entered into the office of Sheriff George J. Werner in White Plains, New York and confessed to the slaying of Clarence Peters and claimed that it was in self-defense. And this is here where it seems like an open and shut murder case, and it takes an absolutely bonkers and wild, like Hollywood drama-worthy turn. Because what reason would a seemingly well-to-do vice president of a baking company have to shoot a 19-year-old who wasn't even supposed to be in New York in the first place, point blank in the chest, Self-defense, maybe, but Peter's body had also been found with some interesting things missing. No blood, no trace of a struggle, and uh, vehicle tracks. So to anyone out there interested in true crime, immediately it makes you think of a body dump. Like, that's what I thought when I first read this. I was like, this was a body dump. This wasn't the scene of a crime. And hope maybe I'll be proven wrong as we go along. We'll see when the information comes out, but there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so... Basically, when this case starts to unfold, it turns from strange to outrightly bizarre. And if you hear any strange noises, everyone, um, as before in previous episodes, my cat Luna is intent on making her appearance and she has doing so on the back of Justin's chair right now. I mean, I appreciate having an extra guest. <laughs> I mean, I was not told there'd be an extra guest, but, you know, I'll, I'll allow it for once. Yeah. All right. Luna, just calm down. All right, so when this case starts to unfold, it starts to turn from strange to bizarre to having some serious class implications, which is what really interested me about it, um, how class sort of starts to come into this and be used against um, people in the case and everything like that. Um, because obviously, you have the vice president of a baking company, right? He's probably from 
a prominent family who had been well known in that area for quite a long time. Uh, and then you have, you know, Clarence Peters who's coming from a background that's a little different. And would you say prominent, Justin, or a little more? I would say uh, not prominent at all. He came from a very impoverished neighborhood in uh, in Haverhill. That's where he grew up. Uh, and his parents also were always struggling to find work. His father was, um, he had fallen ill. I think he used to be a painter and then he suffered from some lead poisoning. And so he wasn't able to do a lot of work. He ended up having to take a lot of odd jobs just to try and pay the bills to the point where like most of their meals were just like bread and milk. Oh. And so, no, not a prominent family at all. He came from an extremely different class. So a very big disparity in these two people that are involved in this case from the get-go. Uh, so when Ward confessed to the killing of Clarence Peters in self-defense, he starts to make some other claims, which are just really interesting just because I still like, you know, for the life of me, I'm, I'm still kind of trying to figure out what made him <laughs> like, what you and me both. I just, like, the, <laughs> like, how did you think you would get away with? I don't know. But so basically, he says that 19 year old, again, I'm going to re reiterate that. And I mean, in the 1920s, 19 meant something different than it does now for a lot of people. Uh, but 19 year old Clarence Peters had apparently been a part of a blackmailing gang, along with a man named Charlie Ross and a man named Jack, who had all been blackmailing him for the last six weeks, and that he had known Clarence for years. And I'm sure you're probably wondering now, well, what would make three men blackmail Walter? And how did Clarence's strange journey bring him to this end? So I, I present again this as a collaboration with Justin Peavy of Wonderful Recap of Oz, um, the strange case of uh, Walter Ward and the uh, murder of Clarence Peters in 1922. And you may be wondering why we decided to do this collaboration in particular? Like, why am I having someone who is an excellent historian, but mostly <laughs> uh, deals in literary critique? Uh, come on Life After Midnight. If any of you are listeners of this podcast, you know that we deal in dark history, the macabre, the paranormal, everything else. And this case has all of the above. And trust me, we'll get there. Um, but I found this case because of that Instagram post from Justin. Uh, Justin and I also work together at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, and Justin is a descendant of Clarence Peters himself. So uh, before we launch into the absolute mess that is this murder case, uh, this crazy web, it is Justin. How did you find out about this and and your connection? And and tell me about finding the photo. I just want to hear about how you got to this point with this case. Yeah, well, I started doing genealogy work, personal genealogy work, uh, for about about ten years ago or so. And when I had first gotten involved with like Ancestry.com, I had made some posts on some message boards because uh, I was not really close with my maternal grandfather. I didn't really know him, so I didn't know any of where he came from. My mom wasn't able to, to give me any of that information either. And so I was sort of reaching out to anyone who might know anything about uh, my ancestry. I knew that a family name was Peters and I knew that uh, my great grandmother's name was Doris and I didn't really know where else she came from. 
And someone replied to this ancestry message board that was like, Doris was my aunt. Uh, I, we also had an, uh, I also have an uncle named Clarence who was murdered in 1922. Uh, and his story was uh, on the front page of Time magazine. And that's, he didn't say anything else really. And I immediately messaged him and I was like, sir, you have to elaborate on that. <laughs> you, you can't just like drop that and not offer anything else. And so I asked him like, do you have any articles? Do you have any pictures or anything? And he was like, I don't have anything, but if you look at some newspaper archives, you'll probably find something. All I know is happened in White Plains, New York in the 1920s. So I did some Google searching. I went on newspapers.com and I found some clippings, but not too, too many. I had access to the uh, Boston Globe and New York Times later on uh, when I went to college. So that's when I did a lot of um, a lot of looking into uh, more articles. But I did end up getting in touch with some more relatives on that side. And I had heard quite a few legends and, you know, some people claim it was like, oh, my grandfather was there with him when he left Haverhill and, and, and which is not true when oh you God. when you take a look at other uh, facts of the case. We'll get there. But I essentially got in touch with a relative of mine named Terry, and she was also an avid genealogist, and she made sure to cover as much of this case as possible. She also went on sort of like a research binge like me and just found everything she possibly could. And then she sent me a message and she said, you're never going to guess what I found on eBay. And I went, on eBay? Like, what? And she, she sent me a picture of my great-great-grandparents, Clarence's parents, that was just on eBay. Oh, my God. Now, a lot of old newsreel photos, if they, if, like, New York Times or other, like, like uh, photo agencies like Underwood, uh, thing, companies like that, Clean House, they're going to get rid of their archives, but they're not going to, like, toss them out. And then collectors will just get them and they'll sell them. And so... When I did more research on eBay, I found pictures of, of course, my great-great-grandparents. I found pictures of other people involved in the case, including Walter Ward himself and uh, many of the witnesses, people who were in the jury. Like, all of that was just on eBay. That's incredible And to just find that. I dropped so much money to get those <laughs> pictures because they were all they were all watermarked. I couldn't just download them. Right. Uh, yeah. But I knew that now that I had pictures, I wanted to tell the story in some way. This ended up becoming my my thesis project at college. And there was one picture that was very elusive, and it was the picture of Clarence Peters. Now, the picture I had seen a really poor reproduction in the Boston Globe of uh, the picture of him that was essentially circulated throughout the entire um, into, throughout the entire country among uh, different newspaper agencies. Uh, and I just couldn't find that picture. And a lot of what I did for a couple years was just like go on eBay every so often and just search like Clarence Peters 1922 and just see like is there, um, if there any, if there was anything there, I occasionally will find more pictures of more witnesses, I'll download them, things like that. And it wasn't until just a few weeks ago that on a whim, I was, I was thinking, I'm thinking about using this story for another project and let's just see if I can find anything else on Google. And the first thing that popped up was the picture of Clarence Peters. Oh my God. And, and it's a mugshot, you said, right? Yes, yes. Clarence Peters did have a... a a, a criminal history 
And the most recent picture that they had of him was a mugshot from 1921. It was the year before he was murdered. And that's the picture they used to identify the body because even as the, um, as his uncle said, it's the best picture of him that exists. It's a mugshot, but wow. it's the, you know, we didn't have a lot of cameras. We couldn't take pictures of right. the family. They couldn't afford that. And so the best picture of him that exists was a mugshot in Haverhill. Oh my God. And I just can't believe that you found that. Like I, because when I saw this picture and you said, I think what you wrote in the post was something along the lines of, I just found this picture of my ancestor who was murdered in 1922 or something like that. And it was a very famous murder case. And I was just like, what? (laughs) I I will admit, I was going to add more to that. I think I got distracted (laughs) because I was going to like, probably I was going to share like an article uh, after that. I put on my Instagram story and I was going to share an article. I think I just ended up like, I don't know, making dinner or something or, or my partner started talking to me and I just, my attention shifted but yeah that was i kind of the same thing that my my distant cousin did to me and just like oh yeah you know he was murdered i had an uncle that was murdered and then just leave it there now you left out one part of that message that you told me earlier yes which is like because to just drop this on a relative is amazing so you have to add the other part of what he told you oh yeah absolutely now this is a bit of an exaggeration but not totally an exaggeration uh just so you know how established this ward family was uh the ward baking company that they operated in uh, pittsburgh in new york eventually uh merged with a couple other companies and when it went under new management in the 1930s i believe it was changed to the continental baking company yes i did find that and then and i think a part of the reason for the name change was to sort of distance the company from um some shady business deals that previous boards had uh, had made. Like Walter? <laughs> I don't know if it was Walter. <laughs> I think it may have been his father or whoever succeeded him later. But uh, all I know is that they changed the name. And then in the 1930s, a certain baker who worked for the Continental Baking Company invented a very modern pastry that is still sold today. Yeah. And that pastry is the Twinkie. The Twinkie. The Twinkie. That's a... (laughs) Like, how do you even deal with that? Where you're like, oh, yeah, I have this person that was murdered. Oh, wow, the family invented Twinkies. (laughs) (laughs) And and then, of course, you you, uh, take into effect the fact that as the years went on, the companies merged. It also became, like, just Hostess. It also had Wonder Bread and all these iconic pastries and baked goods. And... um, when I got in touch with that relative who told me that, uh, I was just shocked that you know it was the that this case was even remotely related to the person who or to someone who invented a Twinkie or who uh, inherited the Wonder Bread company, and he made a joke to me that was like, yeah, and if uh, if Nana had a better lawyer, we probably would have owned the company. Oh my God, <laughs> how do you just drop that? That <laughs> so all right so. You've had this amazing journey to find this. You you did this as your thesis project in college, and you adopted a play about it, right? Yes. Uh, I, I had collected as many newspaper clippings as I possibly could, and I even contacted the, uh, the county clerk of Westchester, New York, and I got copies of the district attorney case files. Now, included in those files are 
several different things like like pages long receipt for the uh pinkerton detective agency bill wow uh and a list of all the evidence that was admitted for a list of evidence that was admitted in the trial in 1923 and uh even some affidavits and some uh stenographers minutes and a combination of the DA files and the newspaper clippings, I was able to string together multiple different perspectives of the event and using as much of the original text as possible, I dramatized the show in sort of like a courtroom drama way uh, with little vignettes of several different witnesses that I felt their stories were either underrepresented or were more relevant than the news made it seem and so it was overall a challenge for the audience to decide based on what you hear about this case what you hear about walter ward and clarence peters do you think walter ward would be acquitted or not and seeing it as uh, from a modern lens and of course i won't talk about what the verdict was yet we'll get right, there yeah. but uh trying to see what what people you know based on this evidence what was what outcome would you have reached and seeing how it was either different or similar to what actually happened that's amazing so all right so with all that being said let's let's get into it <laughs> um so um basically the new york daily news chronicled this case incredibly closely and when justin and i first sort of decided to do this and i was like you know would you be interested i don't want to step on your toes if you're going to do something with it but i'd really like to include this on my podcast because it's such an interesting story um and you sent me your google drive of all of the research that you've done and there are just pages upon pages upon pages from the new york daily news they published an article from the moment, you know, Walter Ward came in and confessed pretty, you said pretty much every day, every day until the end of the trial. And then even when, uh, and I guess we'll get to this later, when certain things happened years after the trial and, and like people trying to reopen the case, they covered it. And it's important to note that the New York Daily News was a fairly, I think, a newer newspaper at this time. It was newer. Yeah. And this was sort of their very first, like sensational case and they took it and they ran with it they did all they could to uh, obtain stenographers minutes they could offer uh, as much of a transcription as they legally could in newspapers and so uh god bless <laughs> that, that I mean, we were... <laughs> I was say, so begins the legacy of the new york daily news right right <laughs> uh, like thank god that they were able to get uh to to have access to the information because i think uh, and the New York Daily News also sort of had an extra bias to it. I think the people who were writing for the New York Daily News believed that Ward was guilty uh, of first-degree murder, and they sort of leaned into that more. But the information that they were presenting seems very accurate. It's accurate, yeah. And from what I've been able to like cross-reference, it all seems like it's it's accurate right and, and you know I didn't look too closely at the DA report, but yeah, there are a lot of facts. Um, from what I have looked at from the New York Daily News Chronicle that are insanely matching with 
the DA reports with everything that's coming out in the case. And I think it just speaks to the amount of access that the media and publications had at that time, um, which is far more. I mean, you know, if you think about, and this was, you know, prior to this time, or, or I forget exactly the year, but I always think about um, that iconic image of Bonnie and Clyde sort of when they were killed and you just saw swarms of media swarming the car as they're taking it through the streets. I mean, the access that these people had to this information was far more than it is now. And this is one a clear example of that, that the New York Daily News is able to get all that access. So let's get into it. So all right. When we're talking about the specifics, I, I had mentioned that Walter Ward stated that Peters was a member of a blackmailing gang, mm-hmm. and apparently he said that they bled him out of $30,000 for six weeks prior to the shooting, and that the gang was looking to extort $75,000 more from Ward, because I know that Ward himself, prior to this killing, um, you know, said that he... It was said, I forget where I saw this in your research, but that he had sort of disappeared for yes. like two weeks yes. before uh, this happened. Uh, so Walter Ward at the time was a uh, police commissioner for uh, the town of New Rochelle. And he um, had a reputation for gambling and getting involved in, in horse races and things like that. And a few weeks before the murder, there were a few strange things that happened with Mr. Ward. Now, there was one incident where he had not reported to work at the police station. And one of the other police commissioners, I believe his name is Palmer Tubbs, who was also a, I'm not sure if he was at the time, a co-worker at the Ward Baking Company, but he had at least a past at the Ward Baking Company. So he knew Walter Ward very closely. And so when... Walter Ward didn't report for a few days and his wife hadn't heard from him and his wife had even said, you know, this is a frequent thing. Sometimes I don't always hear where he's going off to, but he always comes home. Yeah. And two weeks was excessive for yeah. her. She's and that, so and that was, that was the problem. So uh, they sent one of the uh, a police officer to go, I think it was a Lieutenant to go look for Ward. And they found him, I think in, if I remember correctly, Maryland yeah, at, a race, at, a, Maryland. at a betting track and he was Bowie um, racetrack in Baltimore, Maryland. Yes. And he was intoxicated. He was like, I, I'm not going home. You can't make me go home. And then eventually like a couple of days later, his, his own brother had to go out there and basically drag him home. Right. And, uh, another strange incident at the time was he had been treated at his home, uh, for a supposed accidental poisoning uh he apparent uh, so his wife had said that you know he suffered from headaches a lot and that in the in the dark he probably grabbed the wrong bottle uh but of course if you're going to link up the timeline with when this blackmailing uh ring supposedly started going after him it sort of lines up with like the same week they started extorting money from him he just so happened to uh accidentally drink poison interesting oh my gosh so yeah so i just wanted to throw that in there just because he's making these claims he's someone who has a background of gambling so i just wanted to set that up and he was found on a two-week bender where he had been in you know 
various places in New York and ended up in Maryland at a racetrack. So this was all happening. And this was about April 22nd, according to the timeline. The murder happens on May 19th. Is, or May 19th is when they find the body of Clarence Peters, right? Uh, May 16th is when they found the body. May, May, May 19th is when it was identified. When it was identified. So, so between April 22nd and May 16th. This is what's sort of leading up to this point, because I kind of feel like we have to set this up for people on how we get to this point, just because there's just so much that comes out. Um, So when Ward does go in and confess, and he's talking about this extortion, says he kills Peters in self-defense, and said he confessed the reason to for the blackmail to Werner, but Werner refused to publicly announce it. Yes, and this is something that plagues the entire case throughout this entire investigation ultimately the murder happens in may 1922 the trial ends in september 1923 that's around 18 months and throughout that entire period of time ward and his counsel and anyone else who may know his reason for this blackmail refuses to say anything it's how did that like i mean how do you get away with that just how do you you right right like yes yes and and blackmailing is of course illegal yeah and you don't and and his counsel was very adamant of we don't want to uh you know defame the ward family we don't want any uh previous acts to come forward that make them seem lesser i mean i think the murder <laughs> right. is enough but, but then you have but then but then you have walter ward come forward and announce like yes i did kill him in right. self-defense oh. and then that follows him for the rest of his life it's so there's a lot of when we get to talk to the trial or we get to talk about the trial i have a list of things of like Things that just don't add up. Right. That yeah. the... We're going to get into it. Yeah. It's... So, all right. So, they refuse to say anything. Mm-hmm. And then Ward pays $10,000. Yep. He pays bail immediately. And just walks out. And walks out. From the White Plains District Court. Very wealthy businessman. At this time, he's also a police commissioner. Right. It's so important to note that he was buddy-buddy with the police department. Uh, there's a really, really eerie photo, uh, a press photo of him sitting in his in his suit with his stupid little hat uh, in front of a bunch of police officers. Yeah, and it's it it feels very uh, very creepy. Yeah, and <laughs> and some of the the photos that you found are just absolutely incredible. You've been able to find in various places, but yeah, I mean. That is just so eerie, and it and it's just this case too has just such echoes of things that we've seen now. I mean, yeah. it literally just has such echoes into things that we've been dealing with for years and years and years. But Ward is sort of that prime example of you know buddy buddy with the police officers, wealthy businessman walks out of court. Yeah, and it's one of those things where you can't make something like this up like and it's it's shocking to me that more people haven't heard of this just because of all of the implications so and ward too when he's talking about when he went to meet peters so he basically says the supposed leader of this supposed gang that had been extorting him 
Um, he went to meet him on a road in Port Chester in hopes that he would, and this is all coming from the chronicle of the New York Daily News because they outline it from start to finish. Um, and they go to meet the supposed leader of the gang on a road in, in Port Chester, New York, in the hopes that he could convince the blackmailers that he couldn't come up with the money they were demanding. And he claims that when he arrived at the scene, Peters and two co cohorts, Charlie Ross and Jack, were in a car together. Peters jumped into Ward's car and pressed a gun to his side and demanded that he continue driving and gave him directions to King Street near the Kensico Reservoir between Chapaqua and Armonk. And so this is six miles away from their initial meeting spot. And apparently the other blackmailers followed in their own car, which that even seems weird to me because it's like, that's just such a weird way to go about thing. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it just all seems very weird to me. Um, and then when Ward stopped the car, the other blackmailers drove forward and blocked the road. And Ward says he came prepared with a pistol hidden between the seat cushion and his left thigh. Peters backed out of the car, keeping his eyes on Ward. And when Peters' feet hit the ground, Ward deflected his pistol with his right hand, grabbed his own gun with his left hand, and shot Peters. And he claims that Peters shot at the same time his bullet flying out of Ward's uh, rear window and embedding itself in a tree four or five feet across the road. Peters then crumpled to the ground near Ward's running board. Ward jumped out of the car when the blackmailers opened fire from their vehicle, crouched behind his car and returned fire. So apparently there's this shootout at this site. So that's, that's really interesting to me. Yes. So keep in mind. There's, an, there's like a shootout of eight or nine shots fired right. in the, on this lonely road in a small town in New York. So he's claiming there's a shootout in the area where Peter's body was found, right? He's claiming that this happened on, on King Street. So then apparently they hint at the possible reasons for the blackmail, which we'll get into later on. But they only found one shell casing. Yeah. at the crime scene so there was a shootout of eight or nine shots and i didn't really get too far into looking into the evidence Justin, but did they investigate ward's car at all like were there bullet holes in the car by the time that they had found ward's car he had already quote unquote had repairs done of course he uh, did. because what had happened was uh the gun when when supposedly uh, of course take this all with a grain of salt this is according to his story when clarence peters shot his pistol it shattered ward's rear window and then he got the that, and then yeah. he got the window replaced they didn't find any fragments of glass at the site um of course his attorney later does say any shot that ward had fired probably stayed stayed um near the car or inside the vehicle uh, but it's also important, but we're going to get to another really strange detail in a minute. It's also not known which uh, guns the other blackmailers had, if they had uh, guns where the shells would eject themselves from the revolvers or anything like that. But after the shootout happens, the blackmailers eventually retreat. They get in their car and they drive towards Chapaqua. Ward also flees the scene. However, he returns to the scene takes Peters' gun and then drives home. Interesting. It's a very uh, important detail because this comes up later. He says, because when he turns himself in, he says, I have my gun 
and I have Peters's gun. For some reason, he didn't think it was... Uh, for some reason, he decided not to leave Peters's weapon with the body. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That... I mean, I'm already, like, guessing at the possibilities of what this is. Uh, There's a lot of theories. Yeah. And we'll talk, we can talk about all of them. Oh, my God. Okay. So, all right. So, moving on. Because this is, like, literally so detailed that if we don't move on, we're going to be here for hours. uh, Hours. (laughs) It's true. It's Um, true. So, basically, they, they start hinting at the possible reasons behind the blackmail saying it seems Ward lost heavily recently in racetrack betting, which was directed by tips given by the two men, Ross and Jack. And Weeks says, I am certain that there is no woman connected with this case. One of Ward's counsels, John F. Brennan, released a statement um, to the district attorney and What was in that statement, the Brennan statement? Oh, okay. So I actually have the statement right here. This is the statement that was delivered to the sheriff as drafted by Campbell, Rabinold, and Brennan, who were Ward's uh, attorneys, and basically said what you said. Uh, It was a complaint against a gang of blackmailers. There were three members of this gang, Charlie Ross, Jack, and a third member known as Pete. Um, Interesting. And they had been trying to extort money from Mr. Ward. They eventually were demanding a lump sum of $75,000. There was a shootout near the Kinsico Reservoir. And then Peters left to the side of the road. And then Mr. Ward promptly, promptly told the story to his attorneys and laid the facts before the district attorney and the sheriff of Westchester County. Uh, according to his story, he immediately told his attorneys. He did not tell his family. Hmm. And his attorneys helped him come up with a a plan to uh, turn himself in. On May 19th is when one of his attorneys went to the sheriff and said, I have a man who who wants to turn himself in for the murder of Clarence Peters. And then three three days later, he he came forward. He came forward. So, and I remember reading that he, prior to all of this, had told his wife that he couldn't come home for dinner because he was going out for a business meeting. So he made up a a, a whole backstory. Supposedly, this was according to Ward, to give himself a cover to go meet the blackmailers. Yeah, he said he they they were having a like a card game at his house that night. There were people there waiting for him and his wife was there uh, and he basically called her and said, uh, I'm going to be home late. I have some business to attend to. And then he didn't return until 5 a.m. the next morning. Right. And they think that uh, Clarence Peters was killed around 4 a.m. Yes. yes. So so that's about an hour window between that and him returning home. So that's important to note, too. So... Apparently, Ward describes this Charlie Ross, too. He says he was the most well-groomed and cleverest of the band, suggesting that he was the brains behind the the scheme and that he was around the age of 26. And Weeks claims that there was information that Ross was a confidence man and racetrack swindler of the most skillful order. And Jack is described by Ward as wearing a chauffeur's uniform and was only ever seen driving the gang's red stutz car, which 
I don't think these two things are connected. One of the things I remember reading is that Clarence Peters had told his family that he was going to enlist in the Marines, right? Just like a few weeks before this. Should we talk about Clarence Peters's actions before this event? We should, but I like to just revisit the the description of Jack Mm -hmm. because one of the things that is said that when Clarence leaves to go join the Marines... He was picked up by a chauffeur, right? Is one of the things that was yeah. said. There, there were a, there were a lot of stories that came forward about Clarence Peters after uh, he was murdered, after he was identified, and Walter Ward came forward. There were a lot of people who made false claims that Clarence Peters used to work for the Ward Baking Company, that he had known Walter Ward, they had been seen together. But everyone seems to agree that um, after his father last saw him the day he left Haverhill, he was seen in Haverhill with a couple of other men. And these were men who were not known to the people in Haverhill, but these men ended up going to um, going with Clarence to. um, I think it was Milford, New Hampshire. It was Milford. I think that's where they, they traveled because there was. Uh, a, a very small scrape of the law there because he was ultimately uh, taken in by police because he matched a description of someone who had committed uh, a theft. Yeah, in robbery. Yeah. yeah, and he was ultimately identified as not the right person and they let him go. Okay. But after that, I hear no mention of these other two people that he was with. That's interesting. So let's get a little bit into... Clarence's history, uh, just because we've gotten a little bit into Ward's history, that he had this background with gambling, you know, at the racetracks, that he's from a prominent family. So Peters, in contrast, is a very different upbringing with a very different background. So I was reading a little bit uh, in the case summaries about Clarence Peters. Um, so he was born March 24th, 1903 in Haverhill, Massachusetts. He's the eldest son of Elbridge Oliver Peters and Inez Capitola Hardy, and he was raised in Haverhill. So let's go a little bit through his history, because it seems like Clarence was a full name, Clarence Melvin Peters, by the way. He had a rough life. He had a little bit of a rough go of it. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, I think it's really important to note that he came from a very impoverished family. and maybe that can be justification for some of his actions later on. Uh, yeah, he did have quite a few scrapes with the law. The earliest one I can find documentation of is 1918, when he was only 15 years old. He was arrested for stealing a bicycle. And then he was accused the next month of stealing money from a collection, bo- like a donation box for uh, people who were fighting in World War One. Uh, now, this was later denied by his family, but then uh, after this incident, he was ultimately sentenced to a uh, reform school in Concord, Mass. Oh, wow. And is that, oh, Shirley Reform School? I've never heard of that. I wonder, is, is that building still in existence or is that school still around or probably I'm not? I'm not sure. I haven't looked too much into it. I have this feeling that the answer is no, uh, but that's always something we should take a look at. But yes, that's supposedly where he was sent. And then. He was paroled from the reformatory in May of the next year and then was sent back 
immediately four days later because he had been arrested for stealing letters and in one of these letters had a six dollar check and then eventually he ends up joining the navy in the fall of 1919 he served as an apprentice seaman and um he was then dishonorably discharged on the grounds of theft on November 17th, 1919. Come on, Clarence. And, and then sent right back to Shirley Reformatory. And he went on parole in 1920 and then was sent back because he stole again, paroled for a third time, sent back for the same offense. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a lot. And in that, in that time, it was... Uh, he was accused of stealing a $25 watch. Right. Now, the, the the biggest and the and the last thing that happened was in January 1921, he was arrested for stealing an automobile. Yeah. He was then sentenced to 30 days in the House of Correction, but was released on bail pending appeal. And then he was he didn't go to court until June, where it was revealed that he had just taken three vehicles that were just left on the streets by their owner and his mother adamantly said that no he wasn't trying to take them for himself he just was he was just taking a joyride down the street because you know he never got to drive a car he didn't have a car and essentially the judge still gave him i think 90 days oh wow in prison And then after that is when he enlisted, he became a a member of the National Guard, where his uncle Earl Hardy was also a member. He was the armorer at the State Armory in Haverhill. Uh, And then arrested again in November for stealing another automobile. And then back to Shirley. And then, so, you know, between then and between all his ins and outs at Shirley Reformatory, um, eventually, I guess, it's decided that he was trying to find a job. Um, he leaves uh, in April of 1922 um, to try and search for work. Yeah. He was looking for work around um, in Haverhill at the time. I think he ended up taking a very temporary position when a lot of, when some restaurant workers were on strike because it was the only job he could get. And the and with all of his passive theft is probably the only job that, anyone would give him right and they were probably desperate but he worked there briefly and he was having a very poor luck with a job search and he had always whenever he did have a job he did give the money to his parents because his parents needed it to support the family at this time they had uh i think five or six children they were trying to take care of and in mid in the end of april he had met with his father and said, I still can't find a job. And he said that he would be home later that evening and he didn't come home. And so his father just assumed that he had went to go and find work elsewhere. And then the next time they hear from him is they get a postcard from Paris Island, South Carolina, that says, right. I'm going to try and enlist in the Marines. And I've passed my initial and i've gotten my initial paperwork done i'm gonna go see if i can pass the physical exam i'm going to the marine barracks now and he ended up saying another letter after that that was like i'm not sure if i'm gonna pass the physical exam but 
you know, I'm still here sending lots of love yeah. at home. And he says, lots of love. He's like, I got sick of looking for work. He wrote a letter. Tell Papa I couldn't wait to go to work because I'd waited too long already and I got sick of looking. And that was in his letter um, that he wrote home. And then he writes a letter um, enclosed in a Knights Columbus of Columbus envelope, it says, from Paris Island to his mom. And he writes, Dear Mother, just a few lines to let you know I've joined the Marines, but do not know whether I can pass or not. I'll let you know if I do. I'm down to Paris Island, South Carolina, now at the Marine Barracks. Do not write to me until I find out how I'm going to pass. I will let you know if I pass or don't. Tell everybody I'm thinking of them all the time. Don't worry. Your loving son, Clarence. And then he gets rejected yeah, because, because of his dishonorable discharge from right. the Navy. And the, and the Marine Recruitment Center says, uh, all right, we're going to provide you transportation to get as far as Philadelphia and the rest of the way you got to get home. Right. So... May 12th was when his uh, his application was rejected. This is four days before the murder. Yeah. Uh, May 14th is when they sent Clarence on his way. And the next day around, I think, mid like after early evening, like I think 4 yeah. p.m. in the evening. 4, 4.30 in the evening, yeah. Yeah, that's when his train arrives at Penn Station. And the next record we have of him is him being found on the road at 7.40 the next morning. So here's what we know. Right. He was only in New York for less than 24 hours before he was killed. Right. And that can be traced via a paper trail. Yes. That is definitive. He was not in New York any time before that. He was not... um, If he was involved in this blackmailing ring, it was a very quick thing. And it was... Probably him trying to get home, trying to get money, trying to do anything for a ride. Because yeah, maybe he, he ran into these two guys. Like if if I'm making a theory, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he ran into these two guys. They were like, "Hey, want to make some easy money?" Yeah, and, and that and that's guy. that's yeah. that's a theory that people have have thrown out. And he essentially all he had was the clothes on his back, a cardboard box with a little bit of food and just like a handful of change, like a dollar 32 is what yeah. it was. He was found with when he, uh, when his, when his body was discovered. So he didn't have enough to travel all the way back to Haverhill. And it's really, you know, despite his past, it's so hard. It's so sad to think about like his last words to his mom is don't worry. I can take care of myself. And then, you know, he was just trying to get home and so then sad. something like this happens. Like, yeah, he had a criminal history and whatever, mm-hmm. but he had never hurt anyone. You know what I mean? Right. Like he had never hurt anyone. He had never hurt anyone. They And um, his parents had come forward and, and had stated, you know, he's he's never had a gun or a knife. He's never been one to wield a weapon. And so, you know, and it's also just really important to note that like I mentioned, this is an impoverished family. It's possible that he was trying to go to desperate lengths just to get anything. Right. Like I said, they were having meals of bread and milk, and that was probably maybe once a day. And right. with the with the occasional treat of fried bananas. Wow. That was that's 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 the story that has been told to me by some of my relatives about my great great grandparents. Wow. So 
back to post murder of Clarence. Now we have the background of these two guys that are, for whatever reason, brought into this collision course that ends in the death of Clarence Peters. And Clarence's father actually immediately comes forward and denies the blackmail story. He says, Ward's story's fishy. And as you said, tells his side of the stories, uh, explains that he wasn't known to carry anything. Um, and he comes forward. And then they start searching cafes for these supposed people, Charlie Ross and Jack, when this confession yeah. comes forward. Um, they learn that five weeks before the murder, the murder, Ward had tried to poison himself. And this case report says it was assumed to be in an accident, as you said before. Yes. Um, but could also be inferred as a possible attempted right, suicide. Right. Um, there are also reports that Peters and Ward had been seen together at the Quincy Stables, and that Peters was with Ward in his home hours before the shooting, taking part in a poker party. But th- there, that's not possible, right? right? Because if you look at the timeline of all of these claims being made, between... 4 and 5 a.m. is when Clarence was murdered. We know that Ward was not there. And if Clarence was out in this field with Ward, he obviously could not have been in his home. Right. So immediately, this all starts to sort of break down from the beginning, right? So what comes next? I mean, Ward is is rearrested, right? I mean, there's all these things starting to come out. I mean... Well, the New York Supreme Court notices there are some discrepancies in his story, such as, well, Clarence Peters, you couldn't have known him for more than a day. So, and then just people start making this connection, like, wait a minute, if there was a shootout of like nearly 10 shots, how come none of the nearby homes heard any shots being fired? And so essentially they end up uh, jailing him again he ends up staying in the same cell that was once occupied by Harry Thaw, who killed a man by the name of Stanford White on the rooftop of Madison Square Garden in 1906. Wow. And then two days later, uh, he was jailed on May 25th, and then two days after, he ended up posting bail of $50,000. Now, here's... He's already paid $30,000 to these blackmailers. And... He said, oh, I can't pay the 75000 more. It was probably just him trying to refuse, trying to get out of paying that. But now, in the matter of a week, he has spent $60,000 purely on bail money. And there is a really incredible uh, headline that I saw that I was very inspired by. And I think you're going you're gonna to think this is, this is familiar. I'll talk about this later. But it's called, What is the Price of Honor? Yes. And it's this article about Ward and his counsel are spending so much money to keep that blackmail reason a secret. How big is this secret? And is it really worth all of this money? I, and okay. So I don't want to get too, too into the details of step-by-step with this, because this is a lengthy ordeal when we finally make it to a court date, right? And so, you know, without getting too, too far into it, a lot of things happen. <laughs> a lot of things happen, <laughs> yeah. There's there's these, a lot of theories being ar- thrown around about the blackmail. It's being suggested that the real 
a re- leader of this blackmail ring was a former lover of 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 Mr. Ward of uh, like uh, someone who had an affair with him. There are theories that Peters was mur- murdered in Walter Ward's home and then planted on the road. There were even outlandish theories that even Peters and Ward were lovers and that this murder was the result of a tryst gone awry or that the the reason for blackmail was that Ward was engaging in sexual acts. Um, there's a lot of other discrepancies. Uh, Ward had a past of gambling, he had a past of infidelity, drinking. He had rented an apartment while his wife and kids were on vacation in Canada. I remember where, reading that. Yeah, he where, just like rented a debauchery apartment yeah, for and, like and, a weekend. And, yeah, and he had a lot of female callers. Um, and n- there was also someone who came forward at the end of May that said that it was a woman. Her name was Martha Kendall Mellon. And she came forward and she claimed that back in 1915, when Ward was engaged in the um, in a baseball club in Brooklyn, that Ward had tried to kidnap her. Oh, my like there's all of these things are being dug up. None of them are being confirmed or denied as this blackmail reason. But none of these things are brought up at his trial in September of 1923. Instead. The media is focusing on villainizing Clarence Peters because of his criminal past and his family's economic status. Right. And and even though the representative of his parents, uh, Mark L. Sullivan, basically says, you know, we have the rejection of Peters' application. It arrived on May 12th. We have that paper trail. There is no way he could have spent six weeks blackmailing Ward. Yeah. There, like the evidence is sound that there's no way Peters could have done any of that. Right. And they still start to go after him and his family. And you had told me before, and this is so interesting that because he was a poor person and his family can had connections enough to at least afford some sort of representation. Right. They start to go after the family. Yeah. They 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 <laughs> for said being able to afford a lawyer. Yeah, they said, well, if Clarence Peters was so penniless and his family was so impoverished, then how are they paying paying all their legal fees? And there are a few reasons for this. Um Clarence's uncle was a very prominent lawyer in Haverhill by the name of Winfield Scott Peters. And no, they didn't go to uh Winfield Scott's um business partner but they did contact a close friend of winfield scott and he agreed to help them and all of their visits to new york to testify or to visit the governor and try to reopen the case and everything those visits were being paid for by friends or other relatives they had a lot of help this was not them just you know blowing all their savings this wasn't that this was them literally getting they needed help every step of the way and, and they were lucky enough to have family members and people right, that could help to, them to have connections that could help them but it's also important to note that this entire time they also were very they were very i'm i'm still like shocked at how eloquent they are in the newspaper in the way that the newspaper is portraying them because they were not fully educated but i think they had to step up to this position where we're now in the public eye we need people to see us a certain way mm-hmm. And they made several statements that said, 
we don't want to see Walter Ward in jail if this if the reason he killed our son is justified. We just want him to go to a trial. And this trial keeps getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And, delayed, yeah. and then it gets dropped at the end of 1923. And it has to be Inez Peters' job to go to the governor in New York herself and say, what the hell? He didn't face a trial of his peers. There's not enough evidence to say that he's innocent or guilty. You need to put him on trial. He needs to answer to everyone why he killed my son because now this person who supposedly killed him is just walking free with no consequence yeah and so what so i mean there's just i'm trying so hard not to just launch into all this information because even just looking through the timeline it is just overwhelming i mean there's like an actress that comes forward Mm -hmm. um and reports that she and her husband new details of the murder of Peters. There's, there's a wounded man in New York that's found in Philadelphia suspected to be Clarence's accomplice, Charlie Ross. Um, you know, they, there's other people that a Navy man that disappeared that was found with a memorandum book referring to the Ward baking company. So there are all of these things swirling around. Um, and eventually these people are called forward to a grand jury, right? Like they are. Um, a lot of them do end up giving affidavits and testimonies. There is no um, formal trial that occurs until mid-1923. Right. And of course, the first trial um, has, it wasn't for Ward's innocence. It was actually to decide whether or not the Ward family's telegraphs to each other could be admitted as evidence there was a separate trial dedicated just to that because for whatever reason ward said yes i contacted my father and asked him if i could have some money i contacted my brother asked we could have some money but neither of them had communicated with me that they could because they didn't know why and for some reason he and his counsel did not want to turn over these this documented evidence that he communicated with his family about needing money. They didn't want to bring that into the, to the court. They didn't want to right. admit that as evidence. And, and eventually, um, you know, Ward has a Senator, um, right. Is that who you're talking about? The yeah. Senator that refuses to bring this forward yeah. and refuses to cooperate with the state. Um, and it says because of sand uh, founded a Lieutenant named Eugene Roberts says that, because of sand found in Peter's shoes, he believes there's a falsity in Ward's story. Mm-hmm. So somebody comes forward and says that. He says that if Peters had been shot on the running board of Ward's car and then staggered across the road, falling in the position he found, there would be sand in his shoes, though none was found. Mm-hmm. Also no sign of a bullet that supposedly passed through the body mm-hmm. or the bullets that the blackmailers had shot at the scene. So again, all of this is coming up mm-hmm. again. And then the coroner reveals that Ward admitted to him that he shot Peters. And he said that Ward was pretty lucky, um, to which Ward replied that he might not be so lucky next time. Um, and he refuses to, to uh, Ralph Ward refuses to testify regarding the story he was told by his father, which I'm assuming has to do mm-hmm. with the money that you were talking about. Yep. There's, there's, they thought there may be some conspiracy to get their father out of New York. Um, all of Ward's siblings were ultimately, uh, asked by 
uh, by lawyers if there was a conspiracy to get George Ward out of the picture so he could not testify because George Ward conveniently was not in New York at any point during this investigation. Oh my God. So he could not be summoned to New York to testify. Oh my God. There's a lot of really fishy things about Walter Ward's um, lack or his unwillingness to share any details. Right. And so, okay. So I don't know. So before we like sort of wrap this up here, do you want to get into, should we get into how this trial and all of these court proceedings actually end? Or should we get into the theories? Because like, I don't, I have to say, I don't really know how to unwind this yarn. Yeah, it's there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of complicated things. I think before we start wrap, wrapping up how the trial ended, uh, I think it's important to just note a few more things uh, just really quickly. There was a communication between the lawyers and um, and this woman named uh, Jessie Collette. Oh yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. I uh, that. her nickname was Queenie. Her adopt her her last name was eventually changed to Jones because uh, she was adopted by her stepfather. Yeah. And they were a family from England that ended up settling in Haverhill. And Clarence was apparently um, trying to marry Queenie at the time. Technically, she was still married to someone else, so she couldn't accept him. But he had promised her money. He promised her jewelry. And the family even lent him some money to travel outside of Haverhill. Now, Walter Ward's counsel ended up communicating with his family and got all these testimonies and then tried to convince them to say things against Clarence Peter's character, which they then used in the trial. And they had offered to send the family back to their home place in England if they did that and they actually did do that but then and and then of course now clarence's or the 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 not clarence's lawyers the lawyers for the state because it was a state against uh walter ward trying to find the jones family and they were in england they couldn't get any information from them wow and then it isn't until the spring after the case is reopened that the jones family comes forward and said we were manipulated into giving false testimony by Ward's lawyers. And we have evidence of this. And they, they submitted all of it. And for some reason that was not brought up at all in the final trial. Oh my God. And, and it's amazing because you have, you found a picture of Queenie. Yeah. There's a, there's a news photo of Queenie. I found a picture of, of her mother. I believe her mother, uh, her nickname was Goldie. Yeah. Uh, And, like they were being sought after by lawyers in the press and they eventually came out of hiding and said, this is what happened. And then nothing came of it. Wow. And then, and and even still, like when we get to the spring of 1923, so there've been all these accusations at this point, we've, mm-hmm. we've gone over some of them. That is not all of them. So I have to be clear to everyone. Yeah. This is literally just a summary of this crazy yeah, this, murder and trial. I, I can't even tell you how much more there is um people offering hits out on walter ward people trying to um extort money from other people to get information or to create false information for the newspapers it's just 
it flies off the handle. It, it does. And I, and then once this case is reopened and we have, you know, Queenie and, and her family coming forward, and then there's a new witness that comes into the mix too, who says that he testifies that his motor truck was stalled all night within a half mile of the spot where Peters was found. Mm-hmm. And he heard no revolver shots. Right. So now we don't even like this mm-hmm. whole crime scene that had been contrived by Ward. It's clear that that probably wasn't even the crime scene. Yeah. Because again, no blood, no evidence, everything like that. Yeah, there, there was a lot of question as to the layout of Clarence Peters body. It looked like his cap had been pulled over his eyes They noticed there was no bullet hole in the front of his vest, but there was a bullet hole in the exit wound, making people believe that maybe his vest was buttoned after he was shot. It looked like he was perfectly laid out as opposed to just crumpled on the ground as he would if he was just shot. Um, There was also some question as to the ownership of the guns, because again, Ward produced both of the guns and he said one of them was Peter's and one of them was mine. And... He produced his own gun and people on the police force seem to recognize that as his gun. But they also recognize that Ward had a gun that looked very similar to the gun that Peters supposedly used. Right. But they could not prove the ownership of that gun. So that was not re- that was not reasonable evidence to indict Walter Ward. Um, they don't talk about his criminal past. They don't talk about supposedly kidnapping someone or, or his issues with gambling or his infidelity, anything like that. Uh, His counsel was notoriously not cooperative and like refused to answer questions when put on the stand. Mm -hmm. There was no substantial proof of the blackmail that was submitted other than the, the uh, corroboration of the statement from his brother and the supposed cablegrams that were sent. No one heard the shots. Walter Ward does not even testify at his trial. But I'm seeing here that on June 22nd, there was an appropriation to carry on. Finally, the investigation of Peter's death um, is asked for by the Westchester County Board of Supervisors Mm -hmm. and by Deputy Attorney General Wilbur F. Chambers. Mm -hmm. And on June 26th, when they try to finally reopen that, the use of the cablegram sent by the Ward family is granted to the grand jury, right. despite the efforts of the council. So they have been trying to, to block get it. these, yeah. and they've been trying to block those cablegrams. And finally, they're allowed to use the cablegrams. Right. Um, and for some reason, the cablegrams, after they're looked at, cannot be used as reasonable evidence to support oh that he was God. being blackmailed. It's just very convenient that these things are just sort of scrubbed from the record and of course where was the father and all of where's george ward and all of this and so there's a lot there's he was ultimately on trial for first degree murder that he had intended to kill an unarmed man in this case would be clarence peters right and this trial doesn't come forth until 18 months after the murder it's been a year and a half it starts in may I'm not sure if it's actually 18, but it starts murders in May and then no trial until the next September. Oh my God. All right. So now we're sort of getting to the end of this. Yes. So um, Peter's parents, you know, they appealed to the grand jury again to return an indictment. And Elbert Peters was actually quoted as saying, I want justice. I want to see word brought to trial. I feel satisfied now that things are going very well. July 26th, he is reindicted for first-degree murder, imprisoned in Westchester Jail. 
Trial date is set for September. Pleads not guilty with a confident smile. Yes, that confident, smug smile. And if you see a picture of him, you can see that confident smile that never wavers throughout the entirety of this investigation. It doesn't. And and when you, when I saw the picture of Ward, when you showed me in your binder of pictures, mm-hmm. I think the first thing I said to you was, oh God, he just looks like a sleazeball. Like, yeah. like he looks like the quintessential 1920s middle parted <laughs> slick yeah, like slick he, back he hair. Just looks like he looks like a mobster. Like yeah. he kinda does. Yeah. Um yeah, so he just looks like that quintessential sort of fixture of smugness mm-hmm. and I'm going to get away with this because I'm from a prominent family and F you, that's why. Right. And so when that new indictment comes forward, they then, they tried to claim it was illegal. <laughs> yes. the They, they tried to block the indictment again, Ward's counsel. Oh my God. And then I noticed that on my birthday on August 23rd, <laughs> um, Palmer Tubbs comes forward and tells the grand jury that um, basically that somebody um, is a cold blooded and closed mouth man with a wonderfully alert mind and an expert pistol shot. And I am assuming he's talking about Ward. He is talking about Ward. So yeah, he's talking about Ward. Mm-hmm. Um but Earl Hardy, uncle of the victim, again testifies that Peters, you know, had no mind capable of doing such things. So we're seeing yeah. a lot of these themes come forward yeah. again. They portrayed Clarence Peters, you know, people often mentioned, you know, he was not a very educated man. He left school early to work for the family and he gave his parents all the money that he made. Yes, he got into scrapes with the law, but he saw no other way of getting by. Yeah. And because no one would hire him and it was, there's a lot of different factors to that. And so basically, finally, Clarence's parents get to testify against Ward Mm -hmm. on September 18th. Yes. Um, The trial itself began September 12th at 10 a.m. with an incomplete jury. Mm Mm-hmm. Maintaining that confident smile, <laughs> jerk. Um, yep. Beryl Ward is there sitting by her husband's side, um, and her arrival comes as a surprise to the jury. It's reported that Ward was casually playing cards with his jailer. He certainly he was, was. Well, keep in mind that He's he was a police, police commissioner. commissioner right? He knew the people in the police force. Um, Beryl eventually suffers an emotional break while the sessions continue on because this has now gone on for, what, a like, year and a half? Essentially, yeah. Um, eventually, Alan Campbell produces 137 issues of the New York Daily News, including <laughs> articles, editorials, and cartoons, admitting them as exhibits yep. <laughs> during the trial. Yep. Um, the Boston Globe starts summarizing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the state is trying to prove that Peters was not killed where the body was found, that he's carried somewhere else. So they are arguing that in the court mm-hmm. at this point. And by September 18th, oh, shocker, Ward finally shows concern mm-hmm. because a state patrolman in Harry Green acknowledges that there was a bullet hole in the back of the vest, which is what you said earlier, but not in the front. And um, Duncan Rose, who discovered the body, so he's probably one of those telephone linemen mm-hmm. that discovered the body, is questioned. Um, there is an inconsistency in Green's story. Um, 
and, and it goes on and on and on. So Justin, do you want to wrap this up for me? Because it is like day after day. After yeah. Day. There's a lot of testimonies as to the discovery of the body. Had it been moved there? Had it been altered after it was, after um, Clarence died? Uh, there was, you know, alterations to the crime scenes was, was another theory that was being thrown about. There were testimonies by Clarence's Peters in favor of his character Beryl Ward testified, you know, that Walter Ward came home at 5 a.m. He was not, I was not with him when the supposed murder took place. I stand by him. I support his character and all of that. And it all comes down to this. Sherman says, Sherman being the representative of the people, says that Walter Ward killed an unarmed man and there is substantial evidence that his story is false. And on that alone, you should see that his story is fishy and we cannot say that he shot in self-defense because that cannot be proven. And then Isaac Mills, who is the representative of Walter Ward, his ult- he delivers a four-hour address, which actually has been conveniently transcribed and is available to people who have access to certain law research databases. That's what I found. I think it's like 130 pages, but his entire summation is there. And it basically boils down to look at this man, look at his family, his wife, his two very young children. Do you believe that a man of this standing in New York, this businessman, this member of the police force, do you think that this man is capable of first degree murder. Ugh. And to no one's surprise, on September 28th, Walter Ward is acquitted. Oh my God. And on then, his birthday. On too. his birthday. What a jerk. Like, just... And the next day, the day after he's acquitted, he goes right back to his office, goes right back to work. And that, I mean, that to me is just so reminiscent of how many times we've seen men in power particularly men in law enforcement too yes especially people walking in law enforcement. right back into the office yep. the next day yeah and um, it is important to note that he did end up resigning his post as police commissioner but he still maintained his high standing in the ward baking company oh of course he did mm-hmm. so apparently um, one of the witnesses upon hearing the news that ward was acquitted a man named william mundia poisons himself in Mm -hmm. tombs prison where he had been confined several weeks prior due to a larceny charge and he receives treatment at belleville hospital Mm -hmm. and walter ward returns to work and then in on april 6 1926 there are reports that an investigation is opened by james cunningham and carl sherman looking into the persuasion by ward's defense team to send key witnesses out of the state so I'm assuming that has to do with Queenie and her family. Right. But then Sherman denies this. He James Cunningham was a very uh, prominent witness in the initial uh, case, but a lot of his statements were believed to be false. His story changed a lot. And he, you know, when it, when he went into to Carl Sherman and, and requested that there be a case reopening, Sherman didn't bat an eye. He, he didn't see... Um, James Cunningham as a reliable source or someone who he should partner with in this. And he thought the case was just closed. 
Oh my gosh. And then, so the, the family of, of Clarence sort of continues to go after him for many years. They yes. try in many different ways. Right. Um, Walter they, Ward like kind of disappears yeah. at one point. So what happens is uh, the Peters family ultimately says, you know, the, the verdict does not surprise us. Of course, we don't want to see him in prison, but we also have to acknowledge that he took our son's life. Our son was a source of income for our family, and they ultimately open up a civil suit to uh, for uh, wrongful death and to pay the damages. And this hap and this case starts getting traction in the spring of 1926, and then suddenly in May. Ward goes missing. They find his vehicle in Trenton, New Jersey. A rock has been thrown, has, has been like thrown through his windshield and his belongings are left behind in the car. And he's just gone. Gone. And no then one can find him for months. For months. And then he reappears in um, Havana. <laughs> so he escapes to his father's estate in Cuba. Right. Without the knowledge of his wife, who then promptly divorces him on the grounds of desertion. Yeah, and, and she she divorces him like at the end of 1927 too. So he right. services in Havana, mm -hmm. and then and yeah, and in 1927 in November they divorce in Reno, Nevada, on the grounds of infidelity, failure to provide, and desertion. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, Beryl then says in an interview with the New York American, I'm sure there's still a chance of happiness for me, despite the trials through which I have passed. People have wondered, I am told, at my silence concerning the unfortunate events that brought me and those nearest to me into nationwide attention. There have been hints that I was silenced by suppression from Walter Ward's family. That is not true. My silence was entirely voluntary. I fell too deeply and suffered too much to give it voice. Even now that I've consented to speak, I prefer to ignore certain events on the past. I prefer to talk about the future. So even when she's asked about the trial, she says, why should we speak of him? I hold no grievance against him. It's not a question of forgetting. That is what I intend to do. I intend to forget Walter Ward completely. He has my best wishes, but he is out of my life forever. It is not true, as has been reported, that I intend to bring suit against him here to compel him to support my children. I want nothing from him, whatever. I have not seen him in 18 months and have no desire to do so. All I know of him is what I hear, that he is in Cuba or somewhere down there. She then said that she wished to clarify a common misconception with the investigation of 1922. I positively was not with Walter Ward on the night he was said to have shot Clarence Peters. So. <laughs> and then the final cherry on top. Walter Ward cannot testify in his defense for this case with um, with the Peters family. He, he just goes missing around the same time he's supposed to testify. So a verdict cannot be reached and the case is dropped. And it's dropped. And, and then it's dropped. And he suddenly reappears in Cuba. In Cuba. And then in May of 1946, he dies in Havana and he's buried in a cemetery in New York. He was 53 years old. Mm -hmm. A woman named Isabel Ward is listed as his widow. Yep. He and remarried. I, don't, I can't find any record of this second marriage, but he supposedly was remarried in Cuba. And his bloodline ended with his children. Mm -hmm. So... Didn't you say that that was on purpose too? That like, well, it's it's possible because his children ultimately grew up without their father. 
because they were still very young. I think the youngest was only two years old when the murder had happened. And then only a few years later is when he disappeared, left the family without telling anyone, faked his own disappearance. And so it's possible that there was some sort of resentment towards the wards, the ward family among the children and they didn't have any. And well, his son ended up dying young. He, I think his son died in his early twenties in battle, but his daughter did not have any children. His bloodline ended with the two of them, but the ward family continued to be prominent. Like I said, they end up being the people responsible for the Twinkie and Wonder Bread. Uh, His brother, Ralph Ward, becomes the president of the Drake Bakery, which is where you get devil dogs and things like that. Oh, my God. I didn't even know that. I didn't read that part. I read about the Twinkies, but I didn't read about the Drake. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like the Ward family finds success. Uh, Of course, the building that Ward worked in now is now long defunct. Now it's a public storage building in the Bronx. And, um, but yeah, Walter Ward is buried in a family lot marked by a huge monument at a Kinsico Cemetery in Valhalla, New York. Meanwhile, Clarence Peters is buried in an unmarked family lot in Groveland, Massachusetts. In where, Massachusetts? Groveland. Oh, my God. So. After all of after this. After all of this, he's in an unmarked grave. Oh, my God. I just... And, and this is why I wanted to do this, just because when, when you initially started telling me the story, it was almost too much for me to wrap my head around. And you know, we've been kind of like touching go on yeah, this for two yeah. weeks at this point. Yeah. And a lot of what we're saying here is like just the, surface. just the surface. And we've been talking for an hour and a half. An hour and a half about it. And, and I haven't even delved into some of the insane theories. And we also haven't even talked about the paranormal uh, right. aspect of this. And. So I would like to briefly touch on that before oh, yeah. we go. They are brief. So. so there are some paranormal aspects of the case. And I know I might be getting this wrong, but did you say that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was like tangentially involved in this in some way? So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle at the time of the investigation um, in like the month after the murder had occurred, he was in the United States because he was giving lectures about um, spiritualism and like spirit photography and things right. like that. And just a brief pause for those of you who've listened to the podcast before, you know that I've talked um, at a great length about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his involvement in various cases like uh, Lady Marjorie uh, in Boston and, and uh, being involved with the Society for Psychical Research, who uh, were one of the first paranormal investigation sort of organizations that really came into fruition around the time of uh, around sort of the end of the golden age of spiritualism, I like to say. Um, and then, of course, there is the American Society for Psychical Research as well that was founded off of that. Um, there's also now we have a New England Society for Psychical Research that was founded by the Warrens and Lorraine Warren. So there are many, many branches of this, all that stem from people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So I like to always mm-hmm. briefly. So this is where this kind of comes full circle and gets very life after midnight. Yeah. I mean, it already did <laughs> right. with the murder. But on top of everything you've all just heard, which doesn't even scratch the surface. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is in the area. Yep. He, he knew uh, Clarence Peters' name. He knew of the case. And um, people had asked him about, you know, you know, you wrote Sherlock Holmes. How would Sherlock Holmes go about solving this case? And so 
first off, he avoids the question. He starts talking about mediums. Uh, he's quoted as saying, I am positively certain that in many mysteries of this kind, a psychic working from a spiritualistic trance has reconstructed the picture of the tragedy and has been able to put the police in the way of solving it. Something of that sort might be expected if a psychic were to be called in. He may not be able to build a picture of the causes which led to the shooting, but I'm certain he could tell how and when and under exactly what conditions Clarence Peters met his death. And then he also mentions that if Sherlock Holmes were to take a look at the case, he would say that he would confine his attention to the Ward family alone, leaving the actual murder to unravel itself after the blackmail mystery was solved. And then finally, an interviewer asked, well, do you think it was blackmail that caused the shooting? And he says this very puzzling thing. He says, Sherlock Holmes always took facts given him and proved them false before dropping them. Oh, wow. And that's where he leaves that. Wow. So what do you think, what do you think he's getting at there? I think he's insinuating that um i mean i'm i'm certain he's insinuating that we do not know the full story even a little bit and i think he's also pointing towards the fact that people are not telling the truth and you have to take the facts that have been given to you and you have to take a look take a really good hard look at them really make sure that they are true factual before you can actually admit them as truth or admit them as you know evidence or in favor of a certain character right i think he is very skeptical of walter ward i but, mean as he should be right but that's all he says he just leaves it on that note wow. it's very ominous and you know i just it's so remarkable to me like as you said and as we said at the beginning of this and, and i'll say this at the end to sort of wrap it up it is remarkable to me that something that was of this magnitude, I mean, if you look at all of the witnesses, this is one of those sort of fantastical cases that you would think would be more well-known. Mm -hmm. And it's just not. It's and not do you think that has anything to do with the Ward family going to such lengths to sort of cover everything along the way and dragging it out as long as it did? Personally, I don't think so. I think there was another case. I mean, not to bring musical theater into it, but you've i'm sure you've seen chicago yes and the whole movie is about trying to get roxy freed and the newspaper comes out that says you know not guilty and as soon as the newspaper comes out someone is shot on the street and all the attention goes to this new person right so really i think it was just forget the twinkie man this right. just happened right. <laughs> sorry <laughs> i know he yeah. was not the twinkie man but, right you know, but but, but you know but like, like you know what this case is closed we're done <laughs> Time to move on to the next thing. Oh, my God. I think the New York Daily News, even in their own like history, has acknowledged the importance of this case alone to help them build their their audience and their their readers. But I think it just shifted to to something else. Right. And, you know, you have this, you know, poor boy from Haverhill that ends up shot by a prominent person who owns, whose family after him, you know, owned a company that is right. responsible for some of the things that are, they're still staples. Devil dogs, Twinkies, today. Wonder like, Bread. And I mean, you know, it's, this, this isn't oh, about, those. I mean, this isn't about <laughs> Twinkies. This is about murder, but right. you know, just to say that it is this remarkable turn of events that even went so far as to be commented on by someone like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's just fallen into obscurity. And it's just fallen into obscurity. And on that note, 
That is all we have for you today. But the reason that we sort of flew through this at the breakneck speed of light is because Justin is working on a lengthier project uh, to really delve into this case. So I know that you are starting this new project. Do you want to drop any tidbits, spoilers, or information? I will happily do that. Now, uh, I'm currently working on a limited podcast series called The Price of Honor, after that newspaper clipping that I mentioned previously. And I've been hoping to do something to honor the 100th anniversary of the murder, which is coming up this coming May. And part of me wanted to revisit my play that I wrote for my college thesis. Part of me wanted to write a book about it. But as I've started doing, uh, I started podcasting earlier this year, I just think that might be the best medium to cover as many of the details as I possibly can uh, in a digestible way and to really devote certain episodes to certain aspects of the case. Because as we've talked about, it's very, very layered and very complex. And it's so hard to get even a summary of this case out without falling down these rabbit holes of like, oh, but what about this? And what about this? So I think uh, what I want this podcast to be is just as complete a case history as I possibly can, uh, present as much evidence, as much of uh, my own personal thoughts on it as I possibly can as well. Of course, I want to present the facts as they are in an unbiased manner. But of course, I also want to talk about things if they are being looked at today in 2021. So um, if you want updates on that, you can actually follow my new Instagram uh, page for it at the price of honor. I'm aiming for this to be released in the coming spring. And I certainly hope that this episode interested you because I'd love to have you listen to this unbelievable case. And I, I absolutely will be listening to it. Like I've already read, you know, a great deal of what you have so far for your research. But again, I haven't even been able to scratch the surface. I yeah. mean, I did, I couldn't even get through all the newspaper articles that you found. I, I mean, I really was only able to really get through, you know, the New York, New York daily news day by day account. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are hundreds sort of, of articles, hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. And hundreds. It's an amazing case. And Justin, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and again, everyone, uh, thank you for listening. I know that I've been gone for a little while. Um, if you want, definitely, if you're into odd literature and dark literature, which as I know many of my people are, definitely check out Wonderful Recap of Oz. I think you're actually releasing the first episode of season two soon. Yes, yeah? I am. On November 12th is this. I'm not sure if that's going to be uh, before or after this is released. But as of November 12th, the season two premiere will be public. And uh, I'm finally delving into the films, the musicals, the other books that are spun off of, of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, such as Wicked or Dorothy Must Die. I'm taking a look at all the major adaptations, and some of them get pretty dark. Excellent. I think that will definitely interest a lot of my listeners. Um, <laughs> and for those of you out there that are Justin's listeners who may be listening to this on Wonderful Recap of Oz, um, I definitely have some more things in the works that are going to be coming out. You can listen to the backlog of episodes on lifeaftermidnightsalem.com or on iTunes. I'm actually also on Good Pods. So if you have that app, uh, you can look it up there. And again, on Instagram, we are at lifeaftermidnightsalem. 
So with that ends the strange case of Walter Ward and Clarence Peters, a murder for the ages. So thank you again, Justin. And I think that's going to be it for us, everyone. All right. Thank you so much.